0: Just a heads up, y'all. There's some language in this episode that listeners may find offensive. So, you know, it's going to be some cussing. You've been warned. I'm Gene Demby.
1: I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji, And this is Code Switch
0: from NPR.
1: This episode features the words and writing of Carla Cornejo via I
2: had always thought of myself as an artist. But I knew that the offers to represent me literarily weren't coming from a place of admiring me as a writer, but from a place of seeing me as an immigrant who had a sad story to tell. And that pissed me off.
0: Literary agents started reaching out to Carla after she wrote this essay for the Daily Beast. It was about being an undocumented Harvard student.
1: And this was back in 2010, about two years before DACA was first announced.
2: They wanted me to call my undocumented status my dirty little secret. And I remember pushing back and being like, like, that sounds like a vibrator. Like, I'm not going to do that. The title ended up being, I'm an illegal immigrant at Harvard.
0: And after that essay ran, she started getting offers to write a memoir.
2: And I was 21. I did not have a memoir in me. And I knew what they wanted, which, which was they wanted, like, a devastating border-crossing story. And they wanted me to write about, like, how I was born in a literal ditch, and I made it to Harvard. And I was disgusted by that.
1: Ten years after that essay in The Daily Beast came out,
2: Carla did publish a memoir of sorts. The Undocumented Americans. This is the author, Carla Cordejo Villavicencio.
0: Shireen, you talked at length with Carla on Mm -hmm. more than one occasion, and you read The Undocumented Americans. Um, So I'm going to get out the way and let y'all take it from here.
1: The impetus for writing The Undocumented Americans was the election of Donald Trump mixed with Carla's absolute refusal to be the new poster child for the American dream. You know, a young undocumented immigrant from Ecuador who goes to Harvard Then Yale gets DACA,
2: becomes a well-known writer. The American Dream is a pyramid scheme, and we are at the bottom. And I am someone who is like one of the top sellers at Mary Kay, because um, I am recruiting so many people, and I just need to warn them that they need to take care of their mental health, because that is going to be the casualty and the price they pay for the American Dream.
1: In The Undocumented Americans, Carla profiles people who've paid a steep price for the so-called American dream, including herself. She writes about her own struggles with mental illness, and she weaves stories from her life with reporting and narratives of undocumented people she meets in five different cities. New York, where she's from, Flint, Miami, Cleveland, and New Haven. Their names have been changed, And perhaps their stories have been changed a bit, too. Carla leaves it up to the reader to decide what's fact, what's fiction, and if it even matters. The Undocumented Americans will make some of you uncomfortable.
2: Maybe you won't like it. I didn't write it for you to like it. And I did not set out to write anything inspirational, which is why there are no stories of dreamers. They're commendable young people, and I truly owe them my life. But they occupy outsized attention in our politics. I wanted to tell the stories of people who work as day laborers, housekeepers, construction workers, dog walkers, delivery men, people who don't inspire hashtags or t-shirts. But I wanted to learn about them as the weirdos we all are outside of our jobs. Carla
1: hopes her book makes you angry.
2: And yeah, be like angry at white supremacy and be like angry at abusive bosses and be angry at the sexual harassment that happens to housekeepers.
1: And she also wants the undocumented Americans to make you curious about the lives of immigrants.
2: The other day I was like having such a bad day, like I woke up with a headache and I went outside and there were these Latino guys across the street listening to bad
0: bunny
2: and then i went out the next day and they were still listening to bad bunny and i was like these guys are a little old to be listening to bad bunny and then i just started wondering i was like why are like did they all agree that morning to play bad bunny like was there someone who disagreed Did they like the video where Bad Bunny is in drag? Like, I just started, like, imagining what their lives were like, you know? And that is different than someone being like, oh, God, I bet they crossed the border. Their lives must be so hard.
1: One of the first people Carla focuses in on is her dad. And his life is hard. But of course, it's more than that. He's a devoted father. He's also made mistakes as a father and a husband. He's forced to work service jobs. He finds demeaning. But he's able to bring his brand of creativity and flair to whatever he does. His story
2: is a big part of Carla's. After my father lost his job as a taxi driver, he found a job as a delivery man at a restaurant down in the financial district. Delivery men in that area call themselves the Delivery Boys. Throughout my teens, I always corrected my father when he said this because I assumed the guys had heard it from some white supremacist boss who was trying to emasculate them, and they accepted it as a neutral term. It made me furious. There's a history to white people calling men of color boys, I would tell him. In the mornings, my father would deliver breakfast to offices in the financial district. A raisin bagel with cream cheese and coffee with hazelnut creamer. A blueberry muffin and black coffee two cranberry scones and three coffees, two cream, one sugar, a single croissant and a single coffee, sent back because it was brought with white sugar and not Splenda, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, oatmeal with brown sugar, yogurt parfaits, orange juice and a banana, a chamomile tea, a granola bar and a chocolate milk. There was no delivery minimum, so my father delivered it all. Because the deliveries were so small, sometimes he didn't get a tip. Sometimes he was told to keep the change, a quarter. Sometimes he was tipped in pennies. He had to say, thank you, sir, thank you, ma'am. Sometimes he was given a $20 tip for a $5 breakfast. He always told us about those tips. They were usually from Puerto Rican executive assistants who talked to him in Spanish and asked to see photos of me, so good and studious, bangs cut right above my eyebrows. My father complimented their nails and asked to see photos of their babies. Sometimes the delivery men carried catering orders. Those would sometimes involve two delivery men, but that wasn't ideal because they had to split the tip. You never wanted to split the tip. The delivery orders were large, but you can carry a lot with two hands if you really try. The breakfast catering orders were usually an assortment of scones, croissants, muffins, and bagels. You couldn't eat one yourself, though. The boss always knew if you ate one. If you needed a water, you had to go up to the cash register and buy the water. There was no discount. Sometimes the older men needed a Red Bull, but the boss put up security cameras in the kitchen area so he could tell if you had a Red Bull. He wouldn't even charge you for it if you had one. He'd just fire you. Do you think I need you? I don't even need to put an ad in the newspaper for this job. There are 20 Mexicans who line up for your job. You think I'm going to spot you a Red Bull? My father is an esthete. Everyone wanted him for the catering orders because he'd do beautiful designs with the scones and the muffins. Like topiary shit. He sometimes had to write labels on heavy stock printer paper, and he'd use his fanciest script. He taught himself calligraphy, like he taught himself everything, and everyone would go, wow, you're so talented. They always made him write the words on cakes. Beautiful fucking handwriting. He'd come home glowing if they complimented his handwriting. My cursive was beautiful for a long time until I started taking lithium, and then my hand shook bad. My dad was so sad.
1: After the break, we're going to meet another undocumented American from Carla's book, and she'll talk about how the protests for Black lives and against police brutality have made her rethink some of what she wrote. Stay with us.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from HelloFresh. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with the meal kit delivery service HelloFresh. Make home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes. Listeners can go to HelloFresh.com CodeSwitch60 and use CodeSwitch60 to get $60 off three weeks, including free shipping on the first box. Additional restrictions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor America Media, producer of Plague, untold stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church a podcast exploring how LGBT Catholics fought, worked, and grieved through the early days of the HIV and AIDS crisis. The New York Times says Plague complicates the conventional wisdom that views the AIDS crisis as a clash between a community dying from an epidemic and the religious institution that turned its back. Subscribe and listen to Plague, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Actress Tracy Ellis Ross is used to people talking about her age a lot. And she's okay with whatever people say.
3: I'm 47 years
1: old and I'm the most comfortable in my skin I've ever been. When we go back to being 22? No,
2: thank you.
0: The Blackish Star on Confronting an Ageist World. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Shireen,
1: just Shireen, code switch. So, a big part of what Carla wants to do in the undocumented Americans is tell the stories of undocumented immigrants who are often completely ignored, or if they're acknowledged at all, they're one-dimensional.
2: For many years, when I have heard nice people try to be respectful about describing undocumented people, I've heard them call us undocumented workers as a euphemism, as if there was something uncouth about being just an undocumented person standing with your hands clasped together or at your sides. I almost wish they'd called us something rude, like crazy fucking Mexicans, because that's acknowledging something about us beyond our usefulness. We're crazy. We're Mexican. We're clearly unwanted. But to describe all of us, men, women, children, locally Instagram famous teens, queer puppeteers, all of us, as workers, in order to make us palatable, my God. We were brown bodies made to labor, faces pixelated.
1: Undocumented
2: workers
1: with sad, sad stories.
2: Oh God, their lives are so hard. It must be so hard to be from that place. Um, I don't know how they do it. And then you feel like really lucky to be in your life. You're like, I am so blessed. So what I did in my book was try to depict um, the people that I had grown to know a lot about and learn to care about as people That you could also be really curious about because i depicted them as who they were which was like people who suffered but also people who were kind of odd and interesting people like paloma
1: paloma is one of a group of people carla profiles whom she refers to as second responders so first responders would be firefighters and medics Second responders pick up the pieces just after tragedy strikes. Hurricanes, fires, pandemics. In Paloma's case, it was 9-11. Carla makes the point that second responders never get the accolades we give first responders. They rarely get a second thought. And they're often undocumented. Paloma cleaned the office buildings around Ground Zero after the towers fell.
2: Paloma has a string of illnesses that are common to all of the cleanup workers. Sleep apnea, PTSD, depression, anxiety, gastrointestinal issues. She also has breast cancer. She can't work because her bones hurt, and she often gets fevers, chills, and vertigo.
1: But Paloma's not just some long-suffering saint. She left Colombia for many reasons which included being sick of her family.
2: It all began to change when her 15-year-old daughter Lucy got pregnant and her boyfriend didn't want to marry her. Am I supposed to marry her just to make you happy? The boy yelled at Paloma, so she punched him in the face. Lucy bounced back quickly after childbirth and began leaving the baby with Paloma all the time so she could go out with her boyfriend or go to parties. Paloma didn't love being a grandma, and she didn't love being a full-time babysitter. I didn't want to live that life. I got tired of it. I'm not the type of woman who just puts up with shit, she tells me. I wasn't born to be just a mother, just a grandmother, just a wife. So I escaped. She left her grandchild, her three daughters, including one who was just seven years old, and her husband, and she came to the United States alone.
1: Yes, Paloma is undocumented. She has cancer. She can't work. And yes, She also enjoys life with her boyfriend, Cruz.
2: Cruz wants to marry Paloma, but she won't divorce her husband in Colombia, even though soon after she left, he began dating the children's teenage nanny, because when he dies, she is entitled to part of his pension. She and the nanny will split it.
1: Paloma is complicated.
2: I love this woman.
1: So, I think it's clear by now that Carla wants more from her readers than to passively consume her writing. She wants us to think and sit in our discomfort. But she doesn't expect something of her readers that she's unwilling to do herself. So, everything you heard up until this point was from a long interview I did with Carla before people took to the streets to protest police brutality and anti blackness. Her and I talked recently. And she mentioned wishing she could rewrite parts of the book with this moment in mind.
2: Before visiting Staten Island, I'd never met a day laborer.
1: Especially the first chapter, where she profiles day laborers in
2: Staten Island. To me, a city girl who knew undocumented men, mostly as restaurant workers, day laborers seemed like an almost mythical archetype. Carla
1: meets the day laborers she writes about at a worker center called Colectiva Por Fin. And it was important for her to profile them because even for her, someone who understands the reality of being undocumented in America, this group was largely ignored and misunderstood. Visible because they solicit work daily, often at busy intersections or in the parking lots of home centers, but invisible at the same time. There's a scene in her book where she goes to a monthly meeting at the center.
2: Tonight, about 50 men end up gathering in the room, plus a couple of women, including a young, white, female pastor who works for Project Hospitality, the parent nonprofit. The executive director of Colectiva Porfin is here, an Argentine man named Simón Torres. He is new, and the men are still making up their minds about him. There are two African-American day laborers at the meeting and an older white man with a shock of white hair and a mustache. Carla
1: doesn't Being talk to the two black the men in the room. Organizer from That's one of her regrets.
2: Being... That day laboring is seen as a largely Latinx, largely Mexican um, way of making a living. Like, how does that impact the way they look at themselves and their lives? And let's not just romanticize a moment of unity when there's probably some complications here. There's probably conflict and, and just complexity here. There's a second thing in the Staten Island chapter she'd change. I... I'm open about the fact that as a New Yorker who grew up in Brooklyn and Queens, the only time Staten Island came up in the news is when they talked about Republicans doing weird shit in Staten Island and also hate crimes, and the hate crimes were Black against Latino. Staten Island is the city's most conservative borough, pretty reliably Republican, the only borough in New York City to go for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. It's also the borough where Eric Garner was killed in a chokehold at the hands of NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo. A Staten Island grand jury declined to indict Pantaleo for murder. I learned about all of this later, but the first time Staten Island really entered my consciousness was when there were news reports about hate crimes against Latinx people when I was a kid. This was the only context in which Staten Island was mentioned on Spanish nightly news. Mexican immigrants as victims of hate crimes at the hands of young Black men, a cruel reminder of the rift between our communities.
1: Carla told me if she could do it over, she would not have left that point dangling. She would have interviewed organizers in both the Black and Latinx communities in Staten Island to see if anything was being done to address the rift. And the third thing Carla wishes she could go back and redo.
2: I think in the chapter where I, I talk about, you know, Haitians and their experiences You know, after TPS was uh, going to be pulled from them, I would have specifically asked them about their blackness, which was a failure on my part not to do. Along with calling herself out,
1: Carla called out Latinx influencers and media folks on Twitter and other social media platforms. She says the constant tweeting and finger wagging about how anti-black the Latinx community is without getting specific does more harm than good. What about the Latinx undocumented people who do get it and understand the connections?
2: The violence they suffer from ICE, like the beatings, they know that that happens um, at the hands of the police to black people, too. They feel a solidarity. And so I feel like elite Latinos on Twitter are running their mouths. And I feel like what that's causing is more division between our communities.
1: Carla told me, if it's really about getting the older generation to understand anti-Blackness, you do that by organizing and educating, not by performing wokeness on a social media platform they're not even on. So do the work. You know, the undocumented Americans, it's this bold reminder of how we erase the vibrant and complicated lives of undocumented people. One way of doing that is by only referring to them as workers. And I really feel like Carla is demanding that her readers, those of us who have the privilege of being seen as more than that, she's demanding that we start putting in the work.
0: All right, y'all. That's our show. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at NPR Code Switch, And subscribe to the newsletter by going to NPR.org slash newsletters. Shereen, did you ask Carla if there was any music right now that was giving her life?
1: Of course I did, Jean. And she told me her psychiatrist asked her when was the last time she felt okay. And she said high school. So whenever she wants to feel okayness, her words. Carla listens to music that makes her feel like a teenager. Like Selena Gomez's song "Souvenir." Me
0: this episode was edited by Leah Danella, who is also a huge Selena Gomez fan. I don't know if y'all you know that. Uh, she talks about all the time. It was produced by you, Shereen,
1: with help from Leah Danella, Kumari Devarajan, and our former intern Diane Lugo. Miss you, D. Wish you were here. Big, big thanks to Penguin Random House Books, who let us use the audio from Carla's audiobook version of The Undocumented Americans.
0: And we'd be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch fam. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Natalie Escobar, Jess Kung, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Steve Drummond, and L.A. Johnson. Coming up on The pod, we are bringing you a special bonus episode for Pride. Here's a little preview. Queer Rights was given to us by the Stonewall Riots, um, which were started by Black, queer, trans women. And they were riots, to be clear.
1: Keep your ears out for that. I'm Shireen Marisol
2: Maraji.
0: And I'm Jean Demby. easy, y'all.
2: Peace. Parents, ever wish
0: you had a coach or a fairy godmother for when your kids hit you with those really tough questions?
1: Well, NBR's Life Kit has tons of episodes to help you through the hardest parenting moments.
0: Listen and subscribe to Life Kit.